Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. What's up, everybody, and, and welcome to What's in Your Glass. I'm your host, Carmelo Anthony. Before we get going, I uh, first want to welcome today's guest. You know him as a former speechwriter of uh, President Barack Obama, the co-founder of Crooked Media, the co-host of Pod Save America, and also the host of all new uh, podcasts called Offline with John Favreau, uh, which we, we, we will get to. We're going we gonna to get to that. But first of all, we, please welcome to the show, John Favreau. Welcome, John. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. Absolutely, man. This is this 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 should be a good one. This should be a good one. Yeah. Um, but before we get going on today's show, uh, I'm I'm drinking uh, Lucata from a good friend of mine, uh, Raekwon, from the from the from the group uh, uh, Wu Tang Clan. He sent me a couple of bottles of, of his own sparkling wine, so which is which is really good. I'm actually tasting it right now. What's in your glass, John? Well, uh, I don't have any wine from Raekwon. <laughs> So I think I have some Malbec from Pavilions down the street. If you could send me some, some wine from Raekwon, that would be cool. I'd like that. I was actually surprised too. He sent it, he sent it over to me. So I was actually surprised. So it was a That's great surprise. Nice. But with that being said, cheers uh, to, cheers. to you and to your wine from Pavilion. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's jump right into it, man. Let's start. Let's start at the beginning. You're originally from Boston, correct? That's right. Um, and, and, and after attending uh, Holy Cross, you, you kind of took a path that kind of led you to be the head speechwriter for then, at, at that time, um, Senator and eventually President Barack Obama. Um, all, all, all told, you were Obama's head speechwriter from, from 15 to 13. How did that initial relationship come to be? Well, funny story about the uh, initial relationship. So the first time I met Barack Obama was in 2004. Um, he was the keynote speaker at the Democratic National Convention in Boston. Um, I was on uh, John Kerry's campaign. John Kerry ran for president in 2004. Um, I had interned in his office when I was at Holy Cross. I got a job on his campaign after I graduated Holy Cross. Uh, so I was 22 years old at the time. I was a press assistant for a while on the Kerry campaign. So I got everyone coffee and did all kinds of grunt work on the campaign. And then eventually I was promoted to um, deputy speechwriter on that campaign um, because they couldn't afford to hire a real speechwriter at that point because Kerry had been losing. And so they just like gave me a promotion. So I was right place, right time, got to be, uh, got to be a junior speechwriter. And during the 
Democratic convention, um, my job was to be backstage at the convention and work with all the speakers who were going to speak at the convention and make sure that all of their speeches were on message with what the Kerry campaign wanted to do. So I'm backstage and I get a call from my boss, who was the chief speechwriter, and he was on the, on the road with John Kerry. And he said, hey, um, Kerry wants to use this line in his convention speech when he accepts the nomination. Um, but apparently this guy who's giving the keynote address, this, this young state senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, he has the same line in his speech. And because John Kerry is the nominee and Barack Obama is just the keynote speaker, um, we need to have you go take that line out of Barack Obama's speech and go tell him to take out the line. And I'm like, why the fuck do I have to go do this? Like, I, I don't, this is crazy. Why don't you guys call him? And they're like, no, no, you got to go do that. So I walked down the hall and um, Barack Obama is practicing his speech for the first time, he's on a prompter. He hasn't used a teleprompter before. He's trying to practice. And I like sheepishly walk into the room and interrupt. And I was like, hey, I, I, I'm this, you know, introduce myself. I work for the Kerry campaign. And apparently there's this line that, that you have to take out of your speech. And um, Barack Obama walks up to me and he's like an, within an inch of my face and he's looking down at me and he just goes, are you trying to tell me that I have to take out my favorite line in the speech? Um, and I just like lost consciousness for a few seconds, uh, at that point. And then, um, when I came to, uh, David Axelrod, who was uh, Barack Obama's chief strategist was right there with me and I had never met him before. And he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, all right, son, let's walk outside and you and I will rewrite the line together. Uh, Cause they figured that he had to do that. So rewrote the line. And at that point I figured, all right, I'm never going to talk to this guy again because he can't stand me. Um, fast forward to. Kerry loses the campaign. Barack Obama wins his campaign. He's in the Senate. And I get an email from a former boss of mine who, uh, on the Kerry campaign, who was now Barack Obama's communications director, Robert Gibbs, who went on to be the White House press secretary. And Gibbs said, Obama needs, um, needs to hire a speechwriter. And um, would you be interested in sitting down with him? And he doesn't think he needs a speechwriter because he wrote that convention speech himself. He's written all of his speeches himself up until now. But now he's going to be the senator with a national profile. He's going to have a lot of, you know, he's going to be very, very busy. So he needs to sit down and learn to work with someone. So I sat down with Obama for breakfast his first week in the Senate in 2005. And um, he asked me what my theory of speechwriting was. And he asked me where I grew up and what my family was like. It was just like the easiest most laid back job interview I've ever had. He was, he couldn't have been nicer. And at the end of the interview, he said, um, well, I still don't think I need a speechwriter, but you seem nice enough. So let's give this a whirl. <laughs> so that's how I started working with them. And about a year later, we're sitting in the Senate office and we're all sitting around and Obama is reminiscing about the 2004 convention speech. And he turns to Gibbs and he's like, do you remember that, that little shit who came up to me and asked me to change that line? <laughs> And I said, I was like, that was me, Senator. He was like, I would have never hired you if I remembered that was you. He just totally forgot it was me. Um, so that was, that's how we started the relationship right there. It was, uh, it was, it was a, we started off on a real good foot. Was, 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 was a career in politics always uh, something always you wanted to do? It's something that I had thought about. I either wanted to be a writer, journalist, lawyer at times. So I was sort of like in that general area, but it wasn't until I, um, I did that internship in Washington, my junior year of college that I sort of gotten, I was bit by the bug and really wanted to be on the, on the Kerry campaign. And then from then on, I just, I really took to politics because I thought I could both 
make a difference. And it was an outlet for sort of the values that I, that I developed in college that I, you know, that I really wanted to make a difference. And, you know, it's competitive and, and exciting. And I like that part of it too. So the two of those things mixed together, um, you know, made it, uh, made it the right profession for me. So speaking, speaking about, speaking on the, the, you know, writing for, for President Obama at the time, Senator, what, because that's hard to do. Like you have to, to yeah. come up with a speech, right? For, for, for the Senate, for Obama is, is very, very difficult and challenging because like he said, he writes his own speeches. He know what he wants to say. He know the tone of his speeches. He know his points and he's very meticulous when it comes to that. So it could be a lot of pressure on the, you know, the speech writer to come in and, and, and try to give him something oh, yeah. to feel comfortable about. But what was, what was your, what was your process like writing a speech for the president? My process was, so I was lucky because as much as, as you pointed out, it's challenging to write for someone who is a writer and such an outstanding writer. So there's a lot of challenges to that, but there's, there's a lot of benefits to it, which is when I started writing for him, he had already written a book, Dreams for My Father, that was also a very personal book. So I got to really know not only how he wrote, but how he thought, because he poured a lot of himself into that memoir. And then he started writing Audacity of Hope once I got to the Senate office. And I was like helping him edit that book as he would like go home and write chapters. I would then edit the chapters for him. So again, I got to know what he thought about policy and politics just by working with him. But then I made my, I like made sure I went to every speech he gave. I listened to every interview he gave, read all the transcripts. Like I made sure that I sat down with him before big speeches and then just interviewed him to figure out what's on his mind. And then sometimes he would sit down with me and say, okay, uh, we're going to do a speech about healthcare just stream of consciousness. Here's what's on my mind. And I would just sit with my laptop and, and type everything out. So it's, it's about sort of honing the skill to be a writer, but it's also in a way you have to be like a mind reader and, and figure out not just how the person that you're writing for writes, but how they think. And, and at this point I can sort of guess what Obama is thinking about any issue. I can guess what he's going to say just because I know him so well. So it's a very weird relationship. Um, but I do think, for anyone who's a speechwriter, the more time you spend with the person who you're writing for, and the more the, the, the closer the relationship you have with that person, the better speechwriter you're going to be. Because I've also talked to speechwriters who are sort of distant from the person that they're writing for, and go through a layer of staff to get to them. And those people, it's just harder for them to write because they don't know what the person's thinking. So the process was that we we worked really closely together, and you know that takes a level of trust. He didn't know me at first, and so. Um, he had to trust me, but to his credit, I'll never forget the first speech I wrote for him. Um, he was going uh, to give a, a speech at John Lewis's 65th birthday celebration, and which is a tough speech to write. Yes, <laughs> like Very. writing for Barack Obama as he goes to you know talk to about a civil rights legend, and Coretta Scott King was in the front row, and you know it was the whole the whole crew was there, and. Um, I write the speech and I come in the next day and Obama had uh, edited it and he comes over to my desk and he's like, so I made a bunch of edits to the speech and I just want to make sure you're okay with these edits. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, man, you're Barack Obama. I'm okay with the edits. You do whatever you want. But that's how he was. He was just a, a, a kind, wonderful person. Never lost patience with me. Never yelled at me in the eight years that I wrote for him. What is, what is, what is one speech or memory you have from your time in the White House that, that stands out? 
Um, the one from the White House that stands out was um, when he won the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Peace oh, Prize. Yeah, that was special. That was a special was, speech. Yes, it was a special speech, and and partly because he he said as soon as he as he won it, like I don't think I deserve this. I don't know why I won it. It's weird that I won a Nobel Peace Prize speech when I'm the commander in chief in, in the middle of two wars right now. But then he thought about it and he said to me and to Ben Rhodes, who wrote, we wrote the speech together with him. Um, he's like, well, I have to make the speech about why we should fight for peace, even as we're in the middle of war and sometimes war is unavoidable. And so he made the whole speech about war and peace, which light topic. Um, but um, he he wrote that, you know, we had done a lot of drafts of that speech. And then the day before we left for Oslo, he came down from the residence and had like 13 pages handwritten plus our draft. And he gave it all to us. And he said, all right, turn this into a speech by the time we leave. And, um, and then basically we flew to Oslo and the entire flight to Oslo, we wrote the speech, wrote the ending. It was the most turbulent flight ever. And I'm not great on planes, um, but we, we got to it and it was so close to not being done that I was literally feeding the final page of the speech into the teleprompter as he was walking up to the stage. Wow. Um, but it, you know, we were really proud of it. And I still think to this day, it stands up as a, as a testament to his worldview uh, on both politics, policy, domestic and foreign, and his sort of theory of politics uh, almost better than anything else that we've done. Just jumping ahead a little bit. After the mm-hmm. White House, you you eventually kind of co-founded Crooked Media in 2017. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, like I said it earlier, you're also the co-host of, of the flagship show, Pod Save America. Right. Um, what, was, what was the initial goal in starting Crooked? I, I, I just wanted to know this. Me personally, yeah. what was the initial goal in starting Crooked? There was a couple things. A couple of us who worked in the Obama White House, those of us who ended up on Pod Save America, myself, Tommy Vitor, John Lovett, Dan Pfeiffer, like we had all been media critics for a long time, especially when we were in the White House. And we complained about the coverage we got. And not just because we were mad that people were critical of Obama and the administration. We thought that the way that the media covers politics became silly, shallow, sensational, um, focused on just who's up and who's down. And, and, and basically we thought that people who cover politics take themselves too seriously and don't take the actual issues facing the country seriously enough. And I think what happens when you watch the news is you get a good sense for everything that's bad in the world and then not a good sense of how you can actually fix it. And I think that makes people cynical about politics. I think that leaves people feeling helpless I think it leaves people feeling hopeless. And we thought to ourselves, even before Trump was elected, we thought, wouldn't it be great to have a media company that told you about all the problems in the world, but also gave you the information and the inspiration necessary to fix those problems, to to let you know that you actually have the ability to change the world around you, that you don't just have to watch bad news all the time. And so we had been thinking about that. And then we all sort of like went our different ways. And then, um, I did a pod, I, I was given the chance to do a podcast by Bill Simmons, um, who also went to Holy Cross um, during the 2016 election. And so Dan Pfeiffer and I did that podcast, Keeping It 1600. It was like our, our political podcast. And we thought it was just going to be a hobby because we thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. And then when Hillary lost and Trump won, we thought, okay, 
we want to keep doing this podcast, A, because it's become popular and B, because now we have a real fight on our hands and none of us want to be retired from politics like we thought we were going to be after the White House. We feel like we need to be in this fight. And by the way, this is now a great opportunity to sort of create that media company that we had always wanted to, that helps people figure out what to do about the, the world around them and how, to, and how to actually be involved in politics and, and civic life. So that's, that's how Crooked started. Well, also, Pod Save America has saved America. I'll tell you that. that just to be, <laughs> We're trying. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that. I'll, I'll tell you that. What is, what, what is something uh, people don't know about Pod Save America that they may be interested to learn? You know, we try to have fun on Pods of America if you haven't. I mean, if, if you haven't listened to it, we talk about the news. We talk about what you can do about it. We try to make sure that people get involved. But we try not to take ourselves too seriously. We try to make sure that, that we can have as, as much fun as possible. And look, sometimes the news is really serious and that's tough. But even then you can have gallows humor. Like I, I just think that our, our view is people are very busy they have, you know, they're, they're trying to pay attention to the news. They're trying to do a lot of things in life. And if you really want to get people to pay attention to politics and news, you have to meet people where they are. And if where they are is, I don't always want to pay attention to what's going on in Washington because it's fucking boring and it's really confusing and complicated. What we're going to try to do is make it accessible. We're trying to make it fun. And we're going to try to make you feel like you can do something about it because you can't. Um, so it is, um, it's a new show, but it's probably, I would say it's one of the, the most fun political news shows around. How has the company changed since it started? Cause I'm, I'm sure it's, there's been so much that the growth of the show, the company, um, yeah. topics have to have, you know, it's, it's very different. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of the still, it's, it's still the, the politics is the backbone to all of it anyway, but how has this, how has the company changed since it started? Yeah, well, we started with, you know, one podcast and now we have like 20, you know, we went into the pandemic with about 40 staffers. We have 70 now. So it's this big company, lots of podcasts and the podcasts aren't just strictly news and political anymore. Um, we do culture podcasts. We've just branched out into some sports podcasts. We have this great podcast, Take Line with Jason Concepcion and Renee Montgomery. Um, and so we're going to then branch out into other topic areas. We're going to do relationships. We're going to do finance. You know, we're, we, so we've got big plans to go into other topics and also um, as opposed to just doing audio, get into video, get into television. Um, we've had, you know, we did an HBO show for Pod Save America. We've also sold a couple um, TV shows uh, based on podcasts that we're doing. So we're now trying to be a sort of multimedia, multi-platform company, um, but all based around the idea that smart, funny, inspiring content um, is the best way to actually engage people in the world around them and, and, and help people figure out what they can do about the, the problems that they see. So, and so how has the, you know, speaking about that, how, how has the, the political landscape in, in, in general, which, which, which we all know has become increasingly polarized since the inception of the company, uh, how, yeah. how has it affected not only the shows, but also the larger mission of whatever, of, of the brand? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think part of the challenge is, you know, we now have, like, I wish we had a Republican party where we just sort of disagreed over the average issues that you debate about different. We have different views on healthcare or taxes or climate or whatever else it may be, but we now have a Republican party 
you know, that, that in, we saw this with Trump, but it started before Trump. And, and now even this Trump is temporarily gone, maybe um, it's, it's still there. That is sort of in an all out assault on democracy itself. And I think that, you know, there is polarization in this country, but you also have basically, and the Democratic Party is far from perfect, as we talk about all the time, but you have one party that, you know, increasingly doesn't even believe that people should get a chance to vote, doesn't believe in free and fair elections, just trying to spread lies and conspiracies about the last election, just really dangerous shit. And if you can't, um, if you can't all agree on the same set of facts, it makes it hard to have a real political debate. And, you know, the other thing that we always keep in mind is we're a progressive media company. There's a couple other progressive media companies um, in, in that space. There's a huge right-wing propaganda machine on the other side, but the Fox News turbocharged by Facebook, you know, right-wing YouTube, right-wing talk radio, like they have a pretty big message machine and, and we don't have that. And we're not looking to get into like just a, a fight all the time with Republicans. Like, I don't love that. But when one side is sort of threatening the foundations of democracy, then you, then you have to fight, you know, and that's sort of where we find ourselves now, unfortunately. And, and, and that's, that actually is a great point. Uh, and, and, and Crooked currently is is spearheading, um, say, a, a civic engagement campaign, right? Yeah. Title, title, no off years, which is part of the political and voter engagement from from the arm of the company called Vote Save America. Um, how did this come about? So uh, Vote Save America, we've had uh, running in 2018, the midterms in, in 2020 in the presidential it was really successful. In the, in the presidential, we signed up 300,000 volunteers um, who were making calls and contacting voters, um, which was which is great, raised, you know, tens of millions of dollars for, for candidates. And it was so successful that we wanted to keep it going. One thing you find is that a lot of the money that's raised in politics and campaigns, a lot of the volunteering, a lot of the voter registration happens right before an election. What organizers and activists who work on the ground tell you is we need that kind of work way in advance because if we're having to register a bunch of new voters a month before the election, we're behind the eight ball at that point. It's going to be really hard. So they need the resources now to start registering voters so that we're not running around trying to play catch up in September, October before an election year. So what we're trying to do now is raise uh, about a million and a half dollars by the end of the year to register voters in some of the key states in 2022 uh, and 2024 and beyond, um, just so we can start registering voters now. How can folks learn more? Go to votesaveamerica.com um, and votesaveamerica.com slash no off years. And you can volunteer, you can donate, um, and we'll give you all kinds of information on what you can do. So for people who don't, who, who may not know much about no off years, what, Explain to them what are the ultimate goals of uh, for no off years. Yeah, so we're just going to try to register a ton of voters in all those swing states. Um, and there's a bunch of people right now that, um, you know, they look like they should be our voters. They have the same values as us, but maybe they're busy. Maybe they don't pay that much attention to politics. And by pouring in resources on the ground, you can get people knocking on doors, reaching out to voters, reaching out to their social networks. And, um, and these folks have been, the organizations that we're working with have been doing this work for quite a long time. So they're in the community and, um, and they can help register new voters. And we're hoping to get a whole bunch registered by uh, 2022.
switching gears a bit. Let's let's mm-hmm. let's talk about your new show, Offline with sure. John, which which is a which is a weekly interview series which explores how how the internet shapes basically the way we live. Um, what what was the genesis for for the new show? The genesis, uh, well, there's a personal reason and sort of a larger reason. The personal reason is I just felt. I'm on Twitter way too much. Um, I'm on social media way too much. I felt like it was breaking my brain. I felt like it got worse during the pandemic because we were all stuck at home. And so you have less contact with real people and you have more contact with strangers on the internet, which is never a good thing, especially when it's um, uh, when you're trying to figure out politics. But then I started thinking that this larger democratic project that we're all uh, trying to figure out where we're trying to live together and work together and in, in sort of in a peaceful way, it's harder when everyone's screaming at each other on the internet all the time. And I think that, you know, we've seen, especially with some of the revelations on, on Facebook over the last several weeks, months, that it's not just the way that we are online is not the way that we are in real life. And that's not just by accident, that's by design, right? There are algorithms that do this to us and they make us more distracted. They make us angrier. They make us more anxious. And um, I wanted to explore that. And I wanted to explore how it affects politics, how it affects media, how it affects sports. I mean, I'm sure you deal with this all the time. I I interviewed um, Megan Rapinoe for one of the episodes that's coming out. And, you know, I was asking her just about being in Tokyo for the Olympics where there were no crowds but because there were no crowds and because they were all isolated in their hotel rooms, she was saying they'd spend a lot of time just on their phones. And it's got to be hard when the crowd isn't the crowd in the stadium, but it's a bunch of strangers critiquing your performance every single time that you, uh, that you compete. I mean, I'm sure you deal with this too, right? Like every, single, that, every single night. That, <laughs> yeah, getting that noise out of your head when you see like everyone bitching at you on Twitter, like that's not fun. Maybe I need to listen to offline with John. <laughs> yeah, you should. No, the, you'll like the, you'll like the, because on the sports episode with Megan, I focused on sort of um, athletes and mental health. Obviously this was an issue in the Olympics too, with a lot of the athletes there just talking about the mental health challenges they faced. And partly it was because, and some of them said that it was social media and it was Twitter and it was Instagram and it was everything they were following there. And um, it, it can get to you after a while. So but we're going to, so we're going to do a bunch of episodes talking all kinds of different people. My first episode was with Gia Tolentino, who wrote a, a fantastic essay about sort of the internet breaking our brains uh, that became a New York Times bestseller. I'm talking to um, Monica Lewinsky about public shaming and, and online bullying and cancel culture and all that. Um, I'm going to be talking to some, some other big guests uh, in the future about media and comedy and all kinds of stuff. So uh, I'm really excited about it. It's nice to uh, take my mind off politics. So what, what, what can we as listeners expect, right? And, and how, is, how is it different from other, say, interview type shows? Yeah, I'm trying to make it a little more, uh, a little more informal, a little more fun. Uh, I don't just want to talk about why the internet is bad. Uh, I don't expect that everyone's going to be able to unplug because this is the way we live now. But I do want to focus on ways that we can live online better, right? Because this is our lives. This is what we do. We're all connected. We're not going to go backwards at this point. But are there ways that we can be kinder, more empathetic, more productive, um, that we can listen to each other a little bit more, that we can use these platforms better than we have been? Um, So there'll be some advice. There'll be some people sharing their own online habits and and, uh, bad ones, good ones. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have some fun. 
Good luck with that too, and congratulations. Absolutely, thank you. Um, I'm 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 looking forward to hearing a a couple of the episodes that you have. Um, bring bringing it all back to what's in your glass. Sure. I, I have a a few quick fire questions for for you to close out. Uh, and, and I and and the people we always have to know what's in your glass on some special occasions here and there. Doesn't have to be a label specifically, but what what what's your go to uh, when you're on vacation? Vacation. Uh, I'm a bourbon guy. So I like, I like bullet bourbon. Um, and now if I'm on vacation, maybe I'll make it an old fashioned. If I'm just, uh, drinking on a regular night, it might just be bourbon with uh, bourbon on ice. I love, I love, a, I love a bourbon too. One of my favorite bourbons is, is Pappy Van Winkle. One of my, one of my favorites. That's very good. That's special occasion bourbon right there. That's yes. That's <laughs> special occasion for sure. You're, 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 you're out to a nice restaurant. You know, I'm still probably a bourbon guy. I'm pretty boring. Like I don't, I'm not a huge wine person though. I'm trying to be a little bit more of a wine person though. I don't know what I'm doing. So I, if I'm, if I am out to dinner with, you know, a good friend of mine, my co-host is a, is a really good wine guy. So if I'm out to dinner with him or other people and they know what wine to pick, I'll do wine. Otherwise I'm just going to drink some bourbon or I'm, I'm, I might drink some tequila too. I'm, I can do tequila once in a while. Stick with the bourbon. You're, you're, yeah. you're, you're celebrating uh, a, a big win with work. Uh, a big win with work. Then I'm just going to do, uh, then I'm just going to do some shots. Oh, okay. You get right to it. You get right to it, huh? <laughs> then, I'll do, then I'll go right to it. Yeah, I'll do, a, I'll do a shot of tequila at that point. How's that? You're, you're celebrating the launch of a new series, right? It's, it's a lot of hard work you, you have to celebrate. What's in your glass? Um, so I'm not a pure uh, champagne guy. But I've been doing uh, Aperol Spritz, good summer drink, good little celebratory drink, a little lighter uh, if I don't want to do hard liquor. Okay. You just written the best speech for President Obama. You feeling on top of the world. You're going to celebrate. What are you drinking? For that, I'm drinking uh, Johnny Blue. Okay. Uh, uh, Barack is a, is a Johnny guy too, right? Yeah. He's, he's a Johnny and he's also Martini. He'll... he'll I've I've seen him a couple on a couple of flights home after a long trip on Air Force One Hill. <laughs> now do he wear, do he do he have the martini glass or he put it in a regular glass? No, they give him. Oh no, he, it's Air Force One, right? So he's, <laughs> they're going to put it in a martini glass. He's going to have a couple olives, going to have a little dirty, and then he's got his guacamole and chips. And then you know he and Reggie and the crew they're all going to play. Uh, they're going to play cards the whole flight. Home. <laughs> I like I like that vibe. I like that vibe. Man, thank you so much, man. Thank you so much, John, for, for joining me uh, for a glass and, and, and just best of luck with, with everything you, uh, you have going on right now. I want to say thank you to the audience for, for tuning in this week. Please follow, rate, review what's in your glass on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast at. You can also check out the video releases each week on YouTube. Again, John, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Oh, thanks for having me. Now that now the pandemic's over, I'm gonna have to come to a Lakers game. Please come, please come to a Lakers game and we can we can make that happen. All right, man. Thank you.